This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 14th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. And I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, we've spent a lot of time talking about vaccines, how well they work, how best to use them, and we're certainly going to talk about them again later today. But first, I'd like to talk about a trial of a therapy for early infection. We've heard a good deal about the use of antibodies of various kinds as therapeutic agents. What do we know about them? Steve, there's a long history of using convalescent sera and the antibodies that the sera contain to treat infectious diseases. The logic behind that is that they contain these antibodies and the antibodies can neutralize pathogens very successfully and very specifically too, because they're trained on a certain set of antigens contained in that pathogen. During COVID-19, there have been two general approaches to antibody therapy. The first is to use the traditional convalescent plasma. These are obtained from patients who've recovered from disease and therefore have mounted an antibody response. They contain a polyclonal response, so many different antibodies with different specificities. And there may be some advantage in the varying specificities that they contain. It's pretty straightforward to make these because it's been done for more than a century. So the processes of obtaining and processing these sera are well-established, but they do suffer from a problem. And that is that the antibody levels vary from patient to patient and are very dependent on the host and the severity of disease and certainly the timing of collecting the sera. But because this methodology is quite straightforward, these sera were some of the first agents tried in the epidemic. More recently, several groups have investigated monoclonal antibodies directed against the virus. In general, these are human monoclonals that have been modified to give them more drug-like properties. The early monoclonal therapies consisted of a single antibody, while some of the more recent studies have been performed with mixtures of two different antibodies. Monoclonals offer a distinct advantage. Every lot is identical so that traditional pharmacologic principles can be easily applied. Of course, while convalescent sera contain a huge diversity of antibody specificities and avidities, monoclonals only have one or two. This could be a problem if the antibodies lose the ability to bind well to, for example, variant viruses. I mean, Eric, you point out that with the development of convalescent plasma, which early in the SARS-CoV epidemic was a therapy that was developed and deployed, has a lot of complexities with understanding what is given. The advantage is the polyclonal response. The disadvantage is you don't actually know what you're giving. Different methods have been developed to try and enhance the potential value of convalescent plasma, such as titering the individual donor. So you, they have a higher titer of what we think might be an important neutralizing antibody or hyperimmune globulin where you can enhance the concentration of the antibodies of interest. But as we've seen in the various studies of convalescent plasma, they're very challenging to understand a property of which is the variability of the product. But this actually isn't new, as you mentioned. We use immune globulin for a variety of things. We have rabies immune globulin, tetanus immune globulin, hepatitis B immune globulin. This goes back more than 100 years in the development of potential therapies. And as you know, Max Finland, who was a senior researcher here in the Boston area many years ago, developed this for treating pneumococcus. 
where it was something we called the Quaylong reaction, where he would develop anti-sera from animals and then understand which pneumococcal serotype an individual patient was infected with and use that to choose the antibody that is most likely active against that organism. So this has a rich history in infectious diseases and how to bring that to bear with modern molecular biology is what we're seeing with the development of monoclonals and how these treatment modalities can best be deployed in our patients who have very acute illnesses. You're right, Lindsay. There's nothing fundamentally different about the monoclonal antibody approach. It's really a continuation of what Finland did years ago. But as you said, there are advantages. And we mentioned some of them, the consistency from lot to lot, for example. But other advantages include the fact that you can choose the monoclonal specificities that give you the best responses, where you don't have that option in the mixed sera that are used for convalescent serum treatment. In addition, Finland, as you said, used animal antibodies. And animal antibodies have their own problems. There are issues with serum sickness and with antibodies raised against the animal antibodies. And all of the newest monoclonals that we use are humanized so that we avoid some of those issues of antigenicity and we see less serum sickness in patients who receive them because they receive less extraneous antibody. So this is a 21st century approach to convalescent serum. Eric, I completely agree what Dr. Finland did 50, 60 years ago has been substantially improved with how we approach developing this kind of therapy. But a principle of what he did, which I think we need to be mindful of, is he was able to choose which antibody based upon which infecting organism, utilizing crude technology to make that determination. But it's somewhat analogous to thinking about viral sequences or variants and monoclonals that may be most active against a given variant that may have some escape properties. So I think the principle of what Dr. Finland did and what we are thinking about today have a lot of overlap scientifically, even though our approaches are fundamentally different. As you've both said, there have been several previous trials of antibody therapies for COVID-19. How would you summarize the findings of those trials? Whether you use convalescent sera or monoclonals, the principle is the same. The antibodies bind to the virus, neither prevent it from infecting cells or increase its clearance from tissues. Thus, you can think about these agents as being analogous to antiviral drugs. If they're going to be effective, it's likely to be during the time that viral replication is important to the pathogenesis of the disease. We think that's primarily at early time points after infection in most patients. In late infection, there seems to be very little viral replication. And in most people, most of the damage is likely to be inflammatory. Thus, I think we can think of the agents like antivirals one might expect that antibodies would be most effective early in the course of disease. I guess that I'd summarize a lot of work by saying that this hypothesis might be true. Certainly, there's not much evidence that administering antibodies at late time points makes any difference at all. The studies looking at early time points have produced more mixed results. There could be multiple reasons for that, but one issue in all these studies is that when a patient presents with symptoms, it's rarely clear when they became infected. That makes it difficult to standardize the entry criteria in a meaningful way. Eric, you point out that how we use monoclonal antibodies is a very important parameter. And when we think about efficacy and therapeutic benefit, prophylactic 
preemptive, which I think of as early infection without disease, and treatment are very different clinical problems and pose very different challenges to the antibodies or to their deployment for clinical benefit. So it's another parameter we have to think about carefully. And for HIV prevention, we recently published the AMP study, which was another monoclonal used to prevent HIV acquisition. And that's a very different problem than treating HIV infection. And even though HIV is completely different than SARS-CoV-2, there still are principles of how these therapies can block pathogenesis and the challenge of the biology with early exposure versus established disease and what benefits we're trying to bring to our patients. I think that's really important to make that distinction. There is the possibility of using agents like this to prevent infection in people who are exposed. Trials like the one that we're going to discuss today, however, are looking at therapy in people who are already infected. And so that's early time points during infection. And I think we will be seeing studies in the near future. There have been a few that have come out looking at antibodies at preventing disease, which is before infection occurs. Today, we published a study of a mixture of antibodies, vanlanivimab and edisevimab, in patients with mild or moderate COVID-19. What did the investigators find? So let me start with a word about the agent that they used. It consists of two different antibodies, one derived from a patient in the U.S. and another from a patient in China. Both of them bind to the viral spike glycoprotein, which is the same antigen that's used in vaccines, but each has somewhat different specificity. Each is highly potent in neutralizing the virus, and, and this combination is already available because it was granted emergency use authorization by the FDA earlier this year based on very early data. So in this double-blind randomized controlled trial, outpatients who are diagnosed within three days of enrollment with a test for SARS-CoV-2 received treatment. All had at least one risk factor for developing more severe disease. The participants were given an infusion of either antibody or placebo. The primary outcome was hospitalization or death from COVID-19-related causes by day 29. There were several secondary outcomes, including measures of viral load and other clinical indicators of improvement. The investigators enrolled slightly more than 500 patients in each arm. Treatment was initiated a median of four days after the onset of symptoms. Both placebo and antibody infusions were tolerated relatively well. The composite of hospitalization and death occurred in 7% of the placebo group, but only 2.1% of the treatment group. There were no deaths in antibody-treated patients, but there were 10 in the placebo group. Other outcomes generally fell along the same lines with better outcomes with antibody. In addition, the viral load fell more rapidly in the treated patients. This is certainly a good result for this therapy. It does suggest that if treatment is instituted early, there can be improved outcomes. However, remember, this is administered as an intravenous infusion, and the logistics of providing this to outpatients has pretty dramatically limited the usage of these monoclonals. I mean, these data are very encouraging, but I do find many challenges in understanding where this fits in. Understanding where in illness these patients are. And what I mean by that is we know that there is such a spectrum of illness associated with COVID that one can have mild or subclinical illness for a longer period of time than you realize before presenting clinically. And we know that the PCR detection of the RNA can be prolonged into illness and beyond. So these 
investigators had very reasonable criteria for enrolling patients within three days of diagnosis and acute illness, but it still doesn't allow us to fully appreciate where in illness these patients were. A biologic marker of this is the emergence of autologous antibody or the individual's immune response to the infection suggesting long enough infection to elicit this. What I think is also important in these data are how the placebo group behave. And what I mean by that is look at the viral clearance in the placebo group, and one sees a two and a half to three log decrement in virus in the first week, with those treated with antibody being faster and more substantial. But there still is a very rapid clearance of virus in the placebo recipients based upon the natural history of illness, immune response, and natural viral clearance. This speaks to the need to really understand the biology of the infection, to understand where in illness a therapy can afford benefit. And the benefit of viral clearance is easier to measure than the benefit on mortality or severe illness, just given the frequency of these events. But it is good to see all of these beneficial outcomes pointing in the same direction, proportionate with what we would expect, showing evidence of augmented improvement with those treated. This is really reminiscent, Lindsay, of what we discussed very early on when antiviral agents that were being tested in some of the first trials failed to hit their clinical endpoints, but they also failed to decrease the viral load by any significant amount. And that, as you said, implies they just didn't work. So having an agent that should block viral replication and not seeing that blockade suggests that the clinical outcomes, which can be a little bit hazier, are probably correct if they're wrong. And in this case, both of these are going in the same direction. So I agree, this is very encouraging. Let's turn to vaccines. Today, we published two papers that look at how best to use them. The first one focused on longer-term results of the early clinical trials of AD26-CoV-2S, the Janssen vaccine. How do these new data compare with earlier findings? This research letter presents the results of immunogenicity studies performed eight months after the vaccine was administered. Remember, this vaccine is generally given as a single dose without any boosting. However, in this study, the results reported included participants who received two doses of the Janssen vaccine during early phase testing. The investigators performed a series of assays to measure antibody binding and neutralization, and also measured CD4 and CD8 T-cell responses. To summarize, all the responses in vaccine recipients declined somewhat between day 57 and day 239, though they remained measurable in most participants. There were three exceptions. One participant who had a breakthrough infection and two who received a subsequent dose of mRNA vaccines had substantially increased antibody and CD4 responses. However, serum obtained late after vaccination actually had a better ability to neutralize all of the variant viruses that they tested. This was true even among those who received a single dose of vaccine. This suggests that although antibody titers decline over time, the breadth of the response, at least to this vaccine, actually improves. Of course, these are only in vitro data. We don't know how well they will translate into protection. I find these data similarly encouraging, Eric. However, complicated to interpret. These are early developmental data. These are early vaccine recipients 
small numbers treated with different doses and different number of doses. So I find it incredibly difficult to interpret. However, these data do show us some very important findings. The T cell responses are measured and we expect them with different vaccines, but to actually measure them and start to have a better understanding of what's elicited is important and reminds us in a experimental way that there's more than the neutralizing antibody. And that is probably true and probably quite important and differentially elicited by the different delivery systems. It also shows us that immune responses mature with time. And that's another important parameter that we don't think about as we think again about the neutralizing antibody in a more monomorphic format. And it's really a more dynamic process. And so I think these data are very important in helping us think a little more broadly in what we need to be measuring and correlating with outcome, albeit difficult and time consuming given the laboratory techniques required. One topic that's receiving a lot of attention today is how useful it will be to boost vaccination with an additional dose. So what are the questions that investigators are asking as they pursue this option? There are two broad categories of strategies to increase immunity in individuals who are already vaccinated. One is to simply give an additional dose of the same vaccine. This homologous vaccination strategy boosts immune responses as measured by in vitro assays of immune function. The second is to boost with a heterologous vaccine. This can be either an existing vaccine or a new agent, generally one that includes the antigenic determinants that are present in the newly circulating variant viruses. Many investigators have focused on using mRNA vaccines as boosters, as these seem to elicit the best protective responses and have a good safety record. Eric, you point out some very important principles. There is the delivery system, which can be heterologous or homologous. And there's the immunogen or the antigen, which can be heterologous or homologous. And both of those need to be thought about as we attempt to elicit the best immune responses, either in patients who have difficulty mounting an immune response or viruses that are escaping. And we want to make sure we broaden the immune response to have activity against the viral variants. The other piece that we do have to remember is the anamnestic response is that once primed, then the immune system can have a more rapid, more robust response when exposed to a similar antigen. And that's something which we haven't thought as much about, but is implicit in natural infection and in developing the vaccines. And then lastly is the practicality issue, which is which vaccines are available in which communities and how to enhance the availability, particularly against the circulating strains. As we're recording this today, Lindsay, there's a controversy going on as to whether or not third doses of vaccine will be required. There are two camps, one that says, clearly you see a substantial increase in immunogenicity and the immune response as measured by generally neutralizing antibodies with a third dose of vaccine. And the other camp says, well, we just don't know the significance of these numbers. These are laboratory values. My own take is that there are not enough data to make the policy decision as to whether or not to proceed. I think that some have pointed out quite rightly that at a time when there's a shortage of vaccine worldwide is the best use a third dose for individuals who are already fully vaccinated 
or is it to try to move some of this vaccine to places where people have not gotten vaccine at all? So in terms of providing additional data, today we published an example of heterologous boosting. What did the investigators find there? Steve, this is a slightly different question from the one that we were discussing. In this case, this group from Sweden looked at heterologous boosting for the second dose of vaccine, not the addition of a third dose. Because there are concerns about the complication of thrombotic thrombocytopenia after vaccination with the Chadox-1 vaccine, the one from AstraZeneca, this group asked how well an mRNA vaccine, in this case, mRNA-1273, the vaccine from Moderna, would work as a second dose in those who'd received a single dose of Chadox-1. They investigated a younger group of healthcare workers who had received a dose of Chadox-1 9 to 12 weeks earlier and who elected to receive a boost with either the same vaccine or the Moderna vaccine. The two groups had similar immune responses prior to boosting. The investigators then assayed antibody responses both a week and a month after the boost. Both groups had an increase in the titer of neutralizing antibodies after the second dose of vaccine, but the increase was considerably higher in the group boosted with the mRNA vaccine, and that difference persisted after a month. This was true using assays that utilized the original Wuhan virus and those that used B1351 or the beta strain, which is particularly difficult to neutralize with immune sera. So there are several caveats here. These are only in vitro studies, and we say that over and over again, but it remains equivalently true all the time. This also wasn't a randomized study. People chose to get one vaccine or another, and the groups were pretty small. In particular, we can't really draw compelling conclusions about the safety of a heterologous boost strategy from studies of this size. But it does appear that, once again, mRNA vaccines do produce more substantial immune responses whether used as a primary vaccine or as a boost. These data show that additional vaccinations enhance the immune response. It's tricky without having the identical control in terms of repeated mRNA vaccinations to be compared to the heterologous. But fundamentally, one can boost immune responses with additional doses. Lindsay, we've talked before about how studies like this might influence clinical decision-making. Are you recommending boosting to any of your patients at this point? Boy, this is a challenging question of what does waning immunity mean? And is it really waning? I mean, it's waning in that the titers decrease, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's loss of protection. And that's something that becomes very hard for people to understand because the data are imperfect as to what titers mean and what immunologic protection is. So in terms of what I recommend to my patients, there is fear and uncertainty, and we need to manage that. I think everyone needs to get vaccinated. And unfortunately, there still are large communities that are not getting vaccinated despite access. Those around our patients need to get vaccinated. The communities our patients live in need to be vaccinated. In fact, we need to vaccinate as much of the globe as possible because this is a way to decrease viral replication and decrease the emergence of variants that can escape vaccine-elicited immunologic pressure. And then what to do about third or heterologous vaccinations? I inform my colleagues and my patients to wait for the data over the next few months. 
There are multiple studies going on looking at this. And as we learn more, we will better understand who to boost. And I think there are different challenges in different communities. In our immunosuppressed patients, we are trying to understand how to boost them in a way that brings out an immune response. And in our otherwise immunologically normal patients, how to broaden their immune response to be active against variants that are circulating or may circulate. Right now, across the US at least, in those communities that have high vaccination uptake, we see transmission has plummeted to incredibly low levels. That is very important in decreasing the risk to our patients and to everyone else. And I think that in and of itself are very strong data to really encourage our patients and the communities around them to be vaccinated to protect each other. And what to do with boosting, I think we will have a few months if people get vaccinated to let the science guide us as to how to optimize vaccinations for the different kinds of patients and viruses that we will be dealing with over the fall. Lindsay, let me put you on the spot for one specific question. You care for a lot of immunosuppressed patients, particularly transplant patients and chemotherapy patients. Are you measuring antibody titers in any of the patients after vaccination? So, Eric, this is a very controversial topic because we don't know what the titers mean. However, I do think it is valuable to measure titers to understand if an immune response has been elicited. Having said that, we don't know how to interpret these titers. So a negative titer does not mean you are not protected. And a respectable titer does not mean you are protected. And which assay is being utilized can affect what titers are measured or the measurements that are not easily comparable across health centers or studies. So right now, the lack of standardization makes it very complicated. But at least at our institution, the Dana-Farber, the Brigham and Women's, which has a large number of patients who have weakened immune systems. These types of data are helping to inform how we think about this problem. But as I said, we don't know what they mean, which makes it very difficult. But I hope over the next month or two, we'll have a better sense of what this means and then how to approach augmenting their immunologic protection. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.